it's not just that we're not driven by rational thinking. Mm-hmm. It's that we don't understand what's driving us. When the regulator sits there and decides what rules to pass, they have a theory of human nature. But the theory is so often so wrong that they create regulations that become useless and sometimes even harmful. First you say you do, and then you don't. And then you say you will, and then you won't. You're undecided now, so what are you gonna do? We're born into a culture where trillions of decisions have already been made by the people who have lived before us. The entire human world is constructed of these expectations. So by the time we join in and we're an adult, it's pretty easy to feel like most of the decisions are limited and oftentimes already made for us. When that operating system is screaming, go to school, get a job, buy all this stuff that makes your life better, have some kids, and borrow enough money to make it all happen, it can very much feel like your margin for independent ideas and motivation just got squashed. So it's no wonder that the decisions that we think we're making often don't feel very rational. It's also no wonder how we can completely lose the motivation to keep slaving away. If you were an alien watching our evolution, you'd see a few big decisions, but on a day-to-day basis, we're all blind to just how those decisions are making an effect not only on our own life, but the future of our species. Dan Ariely, this week's guest, studies decisions and motivation. He's the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University, and he's the founder of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. Dan is also the author of three New York Times bestsellers, including Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. He's also preparing to release his next book, payoff later this year. By the end of our chat, hopefully you have some new frameworks to evaluate your own road, not to mention the many paths around you. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. If we back way up and we think about decisions, we think about rational and irrational decisions, especially as a species, for hundreds and thousands of years, we lived as hunter-gatherers and we were very much present-minded, right? So it's hand-to-mouth, looking for what we could gather or find for that day. So our entire sense of decisions was very based in a reality like that. And then, of course, we made this decision to become agriculturists over time and the sense of time that we you could argue that we started to play with in our heads changed from today to all of a sudden we've got to stockpile food we've got to change this decision to how we spend our time to where it might be less fulfilling today but it's all about tomorrow and so I'd be curious whether first of all you think of that shift yourself when you start thinking about our decisions today and whether we're kind of all walking around a little bit struggling with that very thing that we have a different brain than than the culture that we live in today yeah and uh, i think this is the 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 exact point is you're saying kind of what kind of mechanisms are we endowed with what is the modus operandi that we are uh, that we are uh, functioning with and it is about today 
right? Because uh, nature had some very specific demands from us. Mm -hmm. And uh, you wanted to make sure that you pass the day, that you live till tomorrow to uh, procreate. And you had a very different uh, approach to risk versus benefit, right? Because the world was risky. So uh, one mistake could kill you. Whereas one good thing would not guarantee you life forever. So there was this bias toward avoiding bad things rather than searching for good things. And then we build a different world. And the question is, are we designed for that world? Mm -hmm. And when you think about it this way, the answer is, of course not. <laughs> Now, the, the question is, to what degree is our inherent design basically hindering us? And the answer is to a very large degree. So, so look, um, if you go to a doctor... No matter what disease you have, they basically say the same thing. Eat better, exercise more, sleep more, and sometimes they say take your medication on time if you have medication. But, but most of what physicians tell us to do all the time, it's about stuff that we know what we need to do, right? You don't go to a doctor and they say, stop smoking, uh, eat better, start exercising, and you say, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Thank you very much, doctor, for, for telling me. <laughs> sleep more, yeah. yeah but... But what happened is that we are, we're just not equipped with the tools to do this. And it's actually kind of slightly sadder because there was this analysis that looked at what is the percentage of human mortality that is accelerated because of our bad decisions, right? So think about it. You go around the world and you make decisions. Some of them make you live longer. Some of them make you live shorter. What is the percentage of death that is due to our uh, bad decision making? Mm -hmm. And when they simulated this about 100 years ago, they said it was less than 10%. Think 100 years ago, what could you do that would lead to an early mortality? Now, it's a bit more than 42%. How come? What happened? Technology. As we invent new technologies, we also invent ways to kill ourselves. So smoking is an obvious one. Um, uh, donuts or, you know, obesity is another one. Mm -hmm. Diabetes, cars. texting and driving. Right. Cars. Right? And, and many of those things, even a donut, it's kind of a good invention, right? You can take lots of sugar and fat and compress it to a very small compartment. You say, what an achievement. If we could only distribute this with small amounts to kids in Africa, uh, things would be much better. But of course, that's not how we, how we do it. In fact, one of the big lessons from, from social science is that we make decisions as a function of the environment that we're in. Right? So if you are in a particular environment, you'll make decisions that this environment helps you create. Uh, if I came every day to your uh, office here and I layered your desk with donuts, <laughs> you'll be less healthy at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. If you walk down some stores with some restaurants, if you walk next to a buffet, I mean, our decisions are influenced by the environment you're in. And now think about it, in your environment, Who cares about your long-term well-being? Your loved ones do. Hopefully, right? Yeah. Uh, so hopefully your, your wife, maybe your parents, maybe your kids, maybe a religious institution. But that's, that's about it. And most of the entities, Dunkin' Donuts, coffee shops, Facebook, advertising, apps, um, insurance companies, most of the entities around you that kind of determine the environment that you live in actually have their own short-term well-being rather than your long-term well-being. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. so, so think about the shopping mall. When you go into a shopping mall, 
every store wants you to buy something now. Mm-hmm. They're basically fighting with you. And when you walk with your phone, every app wants you to spend more time on that app. So everybody is, kind of the metaphor I have is that you walk around with your wallet and time and attention and everybody wants a piece of you. Right. And, and you want to have something about your long-term well-being, but everybody else is trying to tempt you. And you know what? Sometimes they know much better than you. Think about when you go to, into a casino. A casino is an amazing environment because these guys control the environment. And when they're making the environment, they're making all kinds of changes, right? No clocks, specific temperature. They give you drinks at the frequency that would make you slightly drunk, but not too tired so that you would leave. That you would leave. Uh, they get you to take chips and translate them into money so that the, the losing that you have ongoing is abstract, uh, is, is abstract right? Where you... Uh, kind of have committed that amount of money in some sense to losing already. You just don't know exactly how how it will happen. Um, they, they do noises. They, they control noises in a very interesting way. If you look at a row of uh, slot machines, they're the noisy one at the edges that attract people in. And then as they become too noisy, people move to the inside uh, of them. Hmm. And then there's lots of other tricks. For example, they have a smell that uh, turns out, they've tried lots of different smells, turns out these smells get people to stay a bit more awake and gamble uh, a bit more. Now, now that's an extreme example because they really control the environment and they also kind of don't seem to have any moral limitations of what they're willing to do to get people to spend, to spend more money. But the principle applies to lots of things, right? You go to a restaurant, you've walked in, you're in their environment, it was designed for something, for something else. So... Yes, not only is it the case that we're not designed for long-term thinking and we are designed for short-term thinking, but also we are designing environments that take advantage, that allow entities to take advantage of our short shortcoming. And the, the outcome, of course, is obesity and diabetes and mm. uh, spending too much time on uh, Facebook and... Uh, and, 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 and there's a lot of sadness to it. And I think, I think that we need to figure out how we design the world in a way that is both compatible with our skills, but also allow us to uh, live in a way that f- fulfill our long-term goals. Right? Does that mean that we're walking around inside of our cultural casino thinking we're making decisions that are free will, that are unique that are purposeful on our own behalf but the reality is is that over the last thousand years or so of building or a couple thousand years of building a cultural operating system that we're all living inside of and then layering capitalism on top of it where it's in the best interest of companies and some of the folks that are profiting from all of our hard work and decisions that we're making that really the choices that are put in front of us are part of that system in the same way they are in a casino, but they're being manipulated. We're all being manipulated inside that culture. Yeah, so so first of all, we do have an illusion of the amount of free will we have. Uh, it's not zero. It's not zero. Uh, but look, you're making lots of decisions all the time, mm-hmm. and very few of them you stop, you think, you put up an Excel spreadsheet, you calculate, <laughs> you... You're going by all kinds of heuristics and rules of thumbs and things you've done before. So even at the individual level, 
uh, there are lots of decisions that have been made for us by people, not always intentionally. Uh, look at something as simple as a refrigerator. If we went and checked your refrigerator mm-hmm. uh, out here, don't do that. <laughs> uh, what are the odds that you have rottening fruits and vegetables in the vegetable drawers? Low right now. Very good. Um, most people have rottening fruits and vegetables. Oh, Why? Because the design of the refrigerator is to take those things that are the most perishable and expensive and to put them in the bottom opaque drawer where it's out of sight, out of mind. So what happens is you think to yourself, what do I want to eat? You open the refrigerator. The first thing that comes to mind is not fruits and vegetables. The fruits and vegetables are hidden. And when you remember to open it, some of them have expired mm. already and it's, too, and it's too late. Now, did the people who build the refrigerator think to themselves, oh, let's do something that people you know, waste fruits and vegetables? By the way, the, the amount of wasted uh, food at the um, average American home is about 30%. It's incredible. It, it's incredible. Um, did the people build it for that? No, of course not. But, but the model that they had on how people make decisions is not the correct model. So we think we make decisions. Often we don't make the full decision. We are influenced by all kinds of things. So even individually, and not always with bad intention, we a lot of decisions are being made for us. And mm-hmm. of course, culturally, there's lots of things that add a layer to that that helps us regulate our environment, right? What, How much do we save? And do we decide to get married? And how we, what we're okay and not okay to talk to our kids and our neighbors and what is the level of privacy and, and so on. So there's lots of decisions that are actually socially have been made for us. And, you know, I we, we also mentioned kind of this notion of capitalism. I, I, I think there's lots of wonderful things about capitalism. You know, people become innovative and try and, and there's lots of exciting things uh, about free, free enterprise. Uh, but I think that there is something very disturbing about not understanding human weakness hmm. and allowing people to build around that in a way that really gets us to perform sometimes in the worst level of our, our human potential. Mm-hmm. So is part of the problem that, by definition, rational and irrational decisions could be synonymous with like, if it's rational, it fits into the cop operating system. It, it's socially acceptable. It's not going to stick out. No one's going to whack you down with a hammer. Irrational. It does not fit in. It does not work within the sameness mechanisms that we've built so that all human beings can work with each other in these large scale ways. Yes. Yeah, so, so I don't think that's the right way to think about mm-hmm. standard rational and irrational. You know, okay. lots of people have different definitions, but Look, the, the standard definition of rational and irrational economics is that rational basically adheres to the principle of economics, mm-hmm. right? It means it's predictable. That you have, you have uh, uh, ordered preferences, you know what you like, what you don't like, you take all the information into account, you make decisions, you don't violate transitivity. I mean, there's some very, very simple stuff like that. Um, when you bring, you know, when you leave economics outside and you go to, to real life, there's lots of things that we do that are irrational from economic perspective, hmm. but are just beautiful. And like you, you would say you would not want to give them up. Giving to charity, hmm. right? Uh, imagine the following story. Uh, you're walking over a bridge. Uh, you're going to a job interview. It's, it's the job interview you, you dreamed about. It's, it's like the, the best company in the world for you, and you have a new suit and new underwear and new socks and new shoes, and you're going to that interview, and you're really so excited 
And as you walk over the bridge, you look over the side and you, and you see a baby about to drown in the river. And, and you know that if you save that baby, you'll miss the job interview and then the job is gone. They'll give it to somebody else. Uh, what is the rational thing to do at that moment? The rational thing to do is to say, let me go and get the job. Um, and I'll give 10% of my money to a charity to save babies. 10% of my money to save babies for the rest of my life is going to be much, much more than saving one baby. I mean, I can save probably maybe 100 babies a year. That's clearly a better, mm-hmm. a better outcome than to save this one baby. How many people would actually do that? Nobody. Uh, well, <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> almost somebody. nobody. Yeah, <laughs> but it'll be, it'll be very hard to do it. And we would look at those people as, as kind of evil. Mm-hmm. Why? Because of empathy. Because, you know, it's true that it's not rational. The rational thing here is to say the life of the one versus the life of the many. Let me do the calculation and figure out what's the rational thing to do. But emotions are not about rationality. You see a drowning baby, your heart goes to them, and you would give up a job to save to save that baby. Um, and it's true for lots of things, right? You would say, why do we give each other advice? And why do we give money to charity. And if you uh, saw somebody stealing a bag from an old lady, why would you chase after them? Mm-hmm. And uh, if somebody has a, a flat tire on the side of the road, why would you, why do you stop? So there's lots of things that we do that are not in the strict sense of rationality. We're not maximizing mm-hmm. our selfish interest. So isn't that socially the... rational versus economically rational? So now now you can now you can take all <laughs> kinds of things. And, yeah. and, and the problem with rationality is that I think that the moment we start expanding the principle, it's not as useful anymore. So I, I would prefer to say all of those things are socially useful, mm. but irrational. I don't feel the need to change the definition of what rationality. But you would say, yes, if I live in a society, and in society people help each other, and in society people donate and contribute and so on, I can see the benefit of how that would work well. In society, even if it's not rational, I can see why it's beneficial. So, so irrationality and beneficial are not always sorry. Rational and beneficial are not always the same thing, and not always uh, desirable. And we need to think about what what are the kind of behaviors we want to encourage in society. Some of them might be rational, some of them might be beneficial, some might be might irrational and beneficial. That's okay. Hmm. Is part of the problem that if you're living in this casino of a culture, again, it may not be maliciously designed. It's just there, right? We're all kind of living inside of it. And but, by the way, let me, let me just just to emphasize this, you know, I, I've done lots of research on dishonesty, and one of the things we find is that conflicts of interest, people mm-hmm. are just blind to their own conflicts of interest, right? I don't know if you like a particular sports team, but you know, if you like a particular sports team. And you go to a game and the referee calls a call against your team. You can't help but see the referee as evil, vile, stupid, blind, something. You want to see the world in a certain way and you see the world in a certain way. And conflicts of interest are everywhere. They're in medicine. They're in lobbying. And, of course, they're in the financial uh, institutions. And over the last you know, couple of decades, we took a lot of regulation out that defended people against conflicts of interest. And, you know, sometimes we see conflicts of interest. Like, for example, nobody ever would say, let's pay judges by giving them 2% of the verdict that they passed, <laughs> right? Let's do revenue right. sharing. <laughs> B- because we realize this would be crazy. Right. But that's how we pl- pay ca- car mechanics. Right. Right. They get 
whatever, 50% of the verdict. And this is how we pay dentists. And this is how we pay physicians. And actually, we're moving to do it more and more. And and we, we're building all of these conflicts of interest because we don't understand how conflicts of interest looks like. So when you look at the deregulation of banking, mm-hmm. or if you look at the increased regulation now on healthcare, I think all of those are dramatically misinformed. And they're misinformed because they work based on a very different assumption about human being, a wrong assumption about sort of human beings. But it wasn't done maliciously. I think, for example, the people who are now creating the regulation for physicians don't think that they're doing it because they're bad people themselves or they want medicine to be to, to serve its constituency in the worst way or the people who regulate the banking. I don't think they saw how corrosive conflicts of interest are. So in many ways, you know, sometimes it's malicious, mm-hmm. no question about sure. it. But many times it just comes from just blindness to our true nature. Uh, just another example. Think about the death penalty. Why, why do we have the death penalty? What is the logic? And, and there are a few things around this, but one of them is deterrence. One of them is the idea that people would say, oh, that's a crime that you get the death penalty. I don't want to do that. Right, so the logic, if you play it out, is you you come home late at night, you're pissed <laughs> off with uh, April, your wife, uh-huh. which I just met, yep. and you take a big knife from the kitchen, and then you say, "Oh, we have the death penalty here. You know, let's what? do something let's else. Let's just talk this <laughs> out. <laughs> let's just let's just go out for dinner instead." Right. You know, that just doesn't happen, right? So when you look at the data and you say, "Let's look at states that have the death penalty and states that don't," and let's see if there's any difference in crime rate, no difference. Why? Because when people are in that state that they might commit such a horrific crime, they're not thinking long term. We almost never think long term, as it is, right? Which is why we overeat and text and drive and so on. But of course, when we're in the middle of an emotional, um, intensive emotional journey, we're not thinking about, about long term. So, so we have these bad intuitions about what's driving us. You know, one of the fascinating things about this is it's not just that we're not driven by rational thinking. Mm-hmm. It's that we don't understand what's driving us. When the regulator sits there and decides what rules to pass, they have a theory of human nature. But the theory is so often so wrong that they create regulations that become useless and some, sometimes even harmful. And isn't there theories around policy and so forth around keeping the system running and that system has to pay for itself, so they have to make those kinds of decisions. Yeah, right? you know, sometimes sometimes there's all kinds of things, but right. but I'll give you I'll give you some 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 simple examples. Um, we did a study a while ago with a company called Panda Express. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've you know yeah, them. It's a sure. It's a Chinese place, yep. a Chinese food place, or you know, Chinese fish. <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> like that. Um, and they sell something called orange chicken, mm-hmm. and orange chicken is. Very unhealthy. It has it's fried twice. It has salt and sugar. It's 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 a crazy dish, also very tasty. People love orange chicken. So um, uh, Tom, who was the CEO of the company at the time, asked me, you know, what can we do with orange chicken? How do we get people to eat less of it? And the first thing we tried was calorie labeling. So we took any every dish in the restaurant and we put the calorie labeling on it. What do you think happened? People still ate it anyway. Nothing happened. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no difference. No difference. New York City then regulated that every fast food place in New York City 
has to put calorie labeling on all fast food. What happened? Nothing. Basically nothing. In some poor neighborhoods, by the way, people started eating worse. Why? Because they saw a label that showed them dollars and calories, and they were trying to maximize calories per dollar. Wow. So they ate worse. A couple of small changes happened, but nothing. But, but the belief that if we only provide people with information, they would do the right thing is so strong. Then recently, the U.S. government passed a law that every restaurant that has more than 20 branches need to put calorie information on their menu. Now, you could say, what's the harm? But, but there actually is a harm because if you have calorie labels, it's very hard to change the menu. Oh, it's very hard to basically be sensitive to local seasonality. So you have 20 branches or whatever, restaurant X, and now I say, should you have different food here and here? Or I say, oh, the tomatoes just became cheaper, or there's abundance of something else. And now you say, oh, how do I even calculate right. what would be the, the change? Right. It, it doesn't fit. I'll have to reprint all the menus, um, and I can't have it not printed. So all of a sudden, things that we think are not... Now, was there a vile intent? Of course not. But was there a wrong understanding of how what actually causes people to behave? The same thing. Look, look at look at smoking. For years, how did we try to combat smoking? The Surgeon General is telling us that this is dangerous. Mm-hmm. How many years did we try it and there was evidence that it was just not working? But people said, no, 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 we just need to tell people again and again. And again. No, it didn't work. The, the things that worked eventually had nothing to do with information. Mm-hmm. The thing that worked eventually was about secondhand smoke. And secondhand smoke is a really interesting moral question. Because, you know, it's, we, we, we exaggerated. We have to admit that we exaggerated secondhand smoke. It doesn't, it's not that it doesn't exist. But if you really wanted to have a health effect, you need to be on the plane all the time when people are smoking or working in a bar. You need like... A really, really be inhaling intent. it a bunch, yeah. And and what we did, though, is we called it secondhand smoke and we villainized smokers. So now you would look at somebody who's just walking by you and, you know, the amount of smoke that they are contributing to your lungs is is nothing compared to your own car or, you know, you know whatever it is. But but you look at them now and you, you look at them in a bad look and, and you make them feel bad. And because of that, we could tax cigarettes to a much higher degree. And because of that, we could ban them from buildings and restaurants and so on. And all of those things help. It was not the information. It was a very, very different set of motivation that eventually reduced smoking from 40% to 20%. We still have a way to go, but we still made some some headways. So, so I think that th- there's lots of regulations that just are very naive in terms mm-hmm. of their assumption of human behavior. And it's not just regulation. By the way, everybody who is doing an app for behavioral change, you, have, you can ask the question of what do they really understand about behavioral change? Every time you and I try to do a behavioral change in, your, in our own lives, how much do we truly understand about what, what is behavioral change? If we don't understand the true, our true nature, mm-hmm. then our efforts are going to be misplaced and we're not going to get much out of it. You talk a whole lot about motivation uh, and behavior change actually in your forthcoming book, which is called Payoff. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, and one of the things I found super interesting about it actually was that we, when it comes to motivating us, that we overvalue the things that we feel like we created, right? Mm-hmm. That we, 
we start to customize something like renovate a house or do something and the value we put on it versus what everybody else says about it is very, very different. I thought maybe it'd be interesting for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so so the the fun name we call this is the IKEA effect, and mm-hmm. this kind of goes after the you know the, the furniture uh, place and and the observation initially was that struggling with the I think very difficult instructions. I don't know if you ever yeah tried. I, have, I always put the stuff in the wrong <laughs> holes and yeah. all that yeah so you know the, the instructions are not that great um, and the observation I had was that I I I was extra friendly with the chest of drawers that I created uh, you know kind of. <laughs> I would pass by the the playroom and I would you know glance at this IKEA furniture and you know we 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 shared an afternoon together, um, <laughs> and I also have kept it you know moving it from place to place as we moved over the years because you built that thing I built that thing um, and 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 we started thinking about more generally about about meaning you know if you if you think about it there's so much to life and consumption that is about meaning right when you drink wine that you know who's the winemaker it feels it feels very different mm-hmm. um if you eat something that you know your mother gave you the recipe mm-hmm. for that it feels very different we actually in many ways we consume we consume meaning um literally yeah paul, paul bloom did this really uh, nice set of studies in which he asked people how much they would pay for a sweater that George George Clooney, yes, yeah. George Clooney, the George Clooney wore, and um, people said lots of money, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Because it was George. And then he said, "What if I washed <laughs> the, the sweater?" <laughs> and and it it turns out that much of the Clooniness goes away. Really, after you can you wash, wash out Clooniness. <laughs> yes. keep that in mind. It, it's still more valuable than the one. Not everything is washed away, but you know, much of the Clooniness is is washed away in um, way. So. You know, there's, there's kind of this notion that meaning is connected and meaning sticks to things and so on. And, of course, one of the ways to get meaning is to get some of ourselves mm-hmm. into something. So we've done lots of experiments on this. And um, we showed a couple of things. We show, first of all, that putting labor into stuff makes you like it more. Um, if it's more labor, you like it even more. So when the IKEA instructions are more difficult and something takes you even longer, it actually has a positive effect on your on your liking. But we also show that we're blinded to how other people view it, our creation. So as we put more effort into something, our liking for it grows, and you expect that other people would see it in the same, in the same eyes. So you can create a piece of art, you can re- renovate your home, whatever you do, you think it's amazing. And partially, partly the amazement is from how much work has gone into it. And then you kind of naively expect that everybody will have your perspective and everybody would look at it and say, my goodness, I can't believe how wonderful. Does that mean that my kids and my marriage and my business and my culture, since those are all things I pour my heart and soul into, I overvalue compared to everybody else? Absolutely. And I think kids are probably the best example. Kids are probably kind of the the extreme IKEA uh, (laughs) effect where, you know, they come with bad instructions, difficult to do and so on. Follow Um, easily. Yeah. So... But but if you think about it, when when you when you're out there with your kids, uh, you are consumed by let's say you're in a playground and your kids are playing. You're kind of consumed with your your kids, and you probably can't believe that other people are not spending all the time looking at your kids. I mean, how <laughs> what else could they be could they be looking? At? It's true that they have kids, but you know but how, how can you compare? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So so we have this egocentric bias 
when we think very much about our own our own ideas and you know it's it's like many things in irrational behavior it's good and bad so you say I want startup entrepreneurs to fall in love with their own ideas and I want them to uh, get this energy and enthusiasm and and drive and basically say everybody else in the world is an idiot and I have something amazing here and I just want to move on and move on and move on uh, at the same time <laughs> it could be too much and they can drive the whole company uh, to the ground or continue for a too long time on a bad idea or if if you look at research uh, research takes an awful lot of time I mean people uh, work Years hours years. it's it's uh, on the weekends uh, for years it's tough it's difficult um, and and if we didn't have the love for what what we do and the over appreciation for the importance of what we would do it would be really hard to continue so so I think a lot a lot of those things with motivation like the key effect and the feeling of ownership is is very helpful in terms of motivation and Uh, but we have to also think about the limitations mm-hmm. uh, for it and at what point it could actually backfire and get people to misspend their time because I think for a lot of people that get they have a, a hard time with motivation they get up every single day they're going into the equivalent of a human mall which is a business park of Dilbert cubes and you doing the same kind of job which has been splintered into a million jobs so they can't even see the effect of it and it's very routine and it's hard to get up every single day and do it yeah you know so 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 in payoff I basically try to kind of uh, split the world into kind of two things I try to say where are the places where we for no good reason just take motivation away from people hmm. what are the things that we're doing in the modern workplace and that are just hurting motivation. We, we all have a desire to find motivation and we mm-hmm. find joy and meaning and purpose in all kinds of things. What are the places at the workplace that are choking or killing motivation? And we have a lot of those things. And, and you mentioned taking a big task and divide them into small tasks. That's, that's one of them, right? So, uh, so when I was teaching at MIT, Uh, we, we got implemented SAP in mm-hmm. the, kind of a big accounting accounting system and this is not just about SAP so I'm not just trying to you know uh, say negative things about about that particular company but the, the procedure that came from it was very much like the um, Charlie Chaplin uh, modern days kind of factory where all of a sudden people just filled out one form or one part of the form and press the button and somebody else would get that form and they would look at it and they would press another form and people got disconnected from the meaning of their jobs mm-hmm. and and I think it, it's very tempting to think about people in kind of mechanical industrial revolution kind of yeah, format yeah yep. here are these people and they're going to you move this thing from here to here and from here to here and they'll press this button I'll prove this and so on and um, and we don't spend enough time on motivation and meaning and find finding finding purpose and because of that we actually decrease people's uh, motivation I mean look th- there's some jobs in in the modern workplace that we could very simply examine how much effort people are putting in 
we can look at the outcome and we can just reward people. So imagine somebody is, I don't know what, layering bricks mm-hmm. or somebody is planting arugula. Mm-hmm. Um, kale, we're in, we're in California. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if somebody is doing that, you can measure how many you know, plants of kale did they put in, how many bricks did they, did they put Most jobs these days, and I think it's becoming more and more, have a huge element of goodwill. And, and goodwill means that you can sit and seem to be working, mm-hmm. but you can think with 20% of your brain instead of 35% of your brain. Uh, you could take uh, more breaks. You could uh, think more. You can think on the way to work. You can think in the shower. You can um, uh, truly care. You can try new things, or you could do the least amount possible. And all of those things mean that, that what we're trying to do is we try to create goodwill. Because goodwill is the engine that gets people to actually care and go be beyond the minimum required mm-hmm. uh, ability. And you know what? There's almost no jobs that don't include that. I mean, I said, you know, planting arugula and layering bricks. But people are collecting trash, for example. We, we did a study with one of the municipalities, and we found that the ways that people collect trash influences whether the citizens are more or less likely to recycle. Interesting. Right? And if you, and if you throw the trash can in a, in a nice way, you leave it there in a, in a, uh, for people in one way, or, you, or if it falls on the side, it makes a difference. And if when you meet people, you tell them something about recycling, it, it makes a difference. So, you know, even jobs that we think are kind of at the bottom of the service providing jobs that don't require much goodwill and interest still have goodwill and interest component. And, and I think, sadly, we eliminate some of that goodwill. I mean, there's another whole element, which is how do we create more goodwill? But mm-hmm. to start with, I think <laughs> we should just say, where are the places where we're just hurting it? And let's stop that. It's interesting to go back to the whole you love the thing that you've invested in as somebody who's in their midlife it's interesting because I think a lot of people who go through midlife crises end up in a situation where they're like, wow, I've spent a huge chunk of my life with a bunch of empty calorie investments for somebody else and the donuts, I guess, mm-hmm. for, you know, and, and it burns off and you start thinking, man, I want to do, I don't want to build Lego spaceships for somebody else. I want to do something that is important to me and has meaning to me, but they're so invested that all their experience and their time and their energy has gone into being a really good Lego spaceship builder that to think about the risk and what it would take and any other kind of decision is so hard to imagine and so hard to fathom how they could replace it and survive that our lives end up kind of just it ends up being kind of an entertaining hobby or it just ends up being kind of on the side but it's almost like we have to finish it up because we've already invested so much in it yeah and and you know i I think that hobbies are different Mm -hmm. um and and we can we can talk a little bit about hobbies separately but i think that actually there's lots of things we could do to increase meaning at work that are not about quitting and you know going to Kenya. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to uh, this was your. <laughs> yeah. But but you know it's not about quitting and um, you know becoming one with nature or going to Kibera to to work with the poor. Um, 
you know, I, th- I think we have this notion that to get full meaning, let, let's say you're working in some job and you don't get a lot of meaning uh, from it and you're uh, dissatisfied, there's a notion that you could say, okay, I just need to go and do Teach for America, right? You can just need to switch completely. But what we find is that there's lots of intermediate steps between that we don't see, that kind of maybe sadly, but also happily, finding meaning is actually quite easy. We don't need to cure cancer and build bridges and so on. Um, we can get meaning by you know, helping younger uh, co-workers, um, guiding them through, through their career. And we can find meaning by finding a part of the job that has some kind of application for the poor or lower middle income or whatever the job is. It's not always that you just need to quit and start from scratch. There's lots of leeway within what we do already mm-hmm. to try and find find better meaning. So if you say I'm at meaning zero now and I need to move to 100, that's one thing. But what... What people don't recognize is that if you're at z- meaning zero, moving to 10 is actually not that difficult uh-huh. and would give you tremendous satisfaction. You don't need to move to 100. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think those are the things that people at the workplace need to provide more and we as individuals need to look for them. So if I go into a job every single day and I feel kind of like I'm bored with this thing, right? I'm not finding the motivation to really, I don't know, get up and go to work. Are you saying that what you need to do is reframe a bit of what you're working on so that it changes your motivation? Yeah. So it's hard to kind of talk about kind of a general, Mm -hmm. general answer like this, but but just imagine you're a clerk at the bank and okay. you and you sit and you get deposits and, and so on. And that's basically it. And after a while, it lost its novelty and you don't feel you're doing much. And, you know, one approach is to say, let me switch and do something else. Um, another approach could be, you know what, let me figure out uh, that people I think should open more emergency savings accounts. And let me from now on, everybody who comes... Uh, try to ask them if they've thought about opening an emergency saving account and see whether I could get people to open more of those. Or you could mm-hmm. say, you know, I I want to understand whether people are giving their kids allowances or uh, if there's a better way to do it, let me start something like this. So, and you could say, let me do it for every client. You could do it, I'll do it for the first three of the day. You don't have to move all the way, but in every job you have, there are opportunities to make it more useful, meaningful, to give you a larger sense of autonomy, a contribution. And then once you learn something, for example, you learn that most people would have liked to open emergency savings accounts or would have liked to open more accounts for their kids. Now you can uh, take that take that on. But the initial feeling of I'm not here just doing what I'm told, that's a very depressing mm-hmm. uh, perspective. But have taking some... Uh, initiative and having some uh, freedom and autonomy, those are kind of interesting steps that don't require, it's, it's, they're almost possible in every, in every job. We just need to think about how to make it happen. Dan, if people want to learn more about rational decisions or if they want to find out more about motivation and the payoffs associated with them, what should they do? 
So, you know, there's lots of uh, research. I, my, uh, my blog, which is uh, danarielli.com, uh, D-A-N-A-R-I-E-L-Y.com, I uh, try to share uh, information. We have some uh, videos, there's some uh, books. Um, and, and there's a couple of, there's a couple of things I, I hope that people would do with this data. So, you know, the or information. So the first thing is that when we look at the big mysteries of life, uh, we usually think it's, you know, out of space and maybe molecular biology. <laughs> but, but the truth is that our own behavior is incredibly mysterious. No, we, we see it all the time. So we somehow kind of see it and don't see it. But the reality is that our own behavior is really interesting. And it goes all the way from, you know, how we wash our hands and what do we do with our kids and how we drink coffee and uh, who do we love. I mean, it, it just, it just, and of course, how do we work and what motivates us and demotivates us. So, so I, I hope that more people would just kind of read about social science and, and start thinking about their own life as kind of how fascinating it is and how little we know. And then the second thing I'm hoping is that people would take some of that information and say, what am I not doing in the best possible way right now? And what can I try? So um, how do I motivate my kids to do better, my significant other, myself? You know, what are the things I could do at work, at home? Um, uh, what are the places in which I waste time, money, efforts, attention, and so on? How do I want to live in a, in a better way? And what's so nice about social science is it gives you some Really, it you know it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll read something and it, this would apply to 100% of the people, but it gives people tools to think about where we all might be failing and what are the kind of things that we can do to make things slightly better. I love it. I'm going to have to go back and audit myself and and challenge my own different departments of my life. See how I can how I can change things too. You know, it it, it try try to sit and just observe yourself from the outside a little bit from time to time. So you sit and you do something and then try and kind of take the outside perspective and just say, okay, what, what is really going on here? And what am I doing that I should be doing? And what are the kind of things I'm doing that might not serve my best interest? That sounds like great advice. Dan, thank you for being on Grow Big Always. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Huge thanks to Dan Ariely for making the trek to Mill Valley to record this episode, for taking the time to do it in the first place. Hopefully everybody got a lot out of that. I know I did. In the meantime, please visit growbigalways.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter so they can see who's coming up next. Ask them some questions, which I did get ahead of this episode. And even record yourself asking them. In either case, I can incorporate it right into the show. As always, thanks for listening, for spreading the word, and for joining me in growing big.